0: Hello, and welcome back to The Road Not Traveled, the podcast about the lesser-known wonders of America. I'm your host, Deeper Probst, and before we begin, I have a quick correction I would like to make from our last episode. In that episode, I spoke about a plant called sotol, which I described as being some form of yucca or agave. Well, while looking up what exactly the difference was between a yucca and agave, I found an article which covered that exact topic, but also covered some plant species that looked very similar to yucca and agave. Turns out Sotol is one of those. Seems I have run afoul of convergent evolution again, whereby two distinct species end up looking similar to each other in order to survive the same local conditions. And finally, before we begin, please stay tuned to the end of the episode, where I'll have some updates regarding the podcast moving forward, as well as a new project I have in the works. So this episode is a little different, in that it will be shorter, and won't focus on a hike. Instead, it's going to expand slightly on a topic that I briefly mentioned a couple of times during our last hike. Invasive species have a massive and often detrimental effect on the native environment that they are introduced to. New Mexico is no different, but before we take a look at some of the more famous invasive species here in New Mexico, I thought it would be worthwhile to take a look at some terms that we need to be familiar with to fully understand what is happening when we talk about these species. First, we need to cover the difference between a native species and a non-native species. While at first this may seem to be a non-question, the devil is in the details. So let's dive in and see what we can learn. Throughout the history of life on planet Earth, species have come and gone, expanded their range, and been reduced to isolated pockets. This is all a natural part of how life has evolved on Earth. The way that the scientific community generally describes a native species is one that can be found in its current range through natural forces. This can occur from a species evolving in its current location or from natural expansion of a species due to tectonic movement, changes to its migration patterns, or even from becoming marooned on an island. The most important aspect of determining if a species is native, though, is whether humans were involved in that species' arrival to a region. But even this definition could be too simplistic. The way that humans see the world is often governed by boundaries that only humans see. We say that species are native to specific homelands, but these are often partitioned along geopolitical lines, rather than by the landscape the species evolved to thrive in. We say that a species is native to a country or landmass and act as if that species has been there forever, even though the world is constantly shifting and changing. To add an additional dimension to the problem, time also plays havoc with the idea of what native is. The horse is a prime example. Feral horses are the descendants of introduced horses brought to North America by the Spanish in the 1500s. Horses that escaped or were set loose created sustainable populations across the Americas where they remain to this day. Many argue that these horses should be treated as non-native and considered a threat to the environments that they have taken up residence in. On the other hand, there is considerable scientific evidence to show that horses evolved in North America and eventually spread to Eurasia, before locally dying out around 10,000 years ago. Many would claim that this means that the feral horses of today should be considered a reintroduced species, that is, slotting itself back into a landscape that it was once a part of. So, already we can see that this is a bit more complicated than it seemed at first. Finally, there is one additional concept that needs to be brought up, and that is endemism. Just because we say a species is native to a region, doesn't mean that it can't be found in others. White-tailed deer is a good example. They are native across most of North America, in a number of different ecosystems, and even under different local names. But when a species is native only to a very specific region, we classify those species as endemic. But even endemic species, can have pasts where they were once far more widespread than they are today. Once, when the Tularosa Basin contained lakes and streams, a small fish could be found swimming throughout the region. These days, the White Sands pupfish can only be found in four places, a series of springs and connected streams in the heart of the basin. Now that we have an idea of what a native species is, we can generally classify non-native species as those species introduced to a region due to human activity. This can be deliberate in the case of the feral horses, whose ancestors were brought over to support human military, agricultural, and transportation needs, or accidental, as is the case for the ancestors of the brown rats that infest islands across the world, brought there as stowaways on board ship. But there is a distinction here as well. Non-native species are generally grouped as either exotic or invasive. Most organizations and articles that I've read for this episode describe exotic species as any species that does not originate from a given region. Generally speaking, these species also would not be able to survive in an area without humans enabling them. Many of our food crops are exotic species corn is originally derived from a species of grass native to central and southern mexico but for the last several thousand years it has been spread by humans first across the americas and more recently around the world on its own though corn is considered unable to reproduce and spread it requires humans to do so if humans vanish tomorrow corn wouldn't be far behind us but where does a species need to be to cross the line into becoming invasive. Well, generally speaking, once an exotic species is able to establish itself in a region and begin breeding, it has the potential to become invasive, especially if its population growth and spread begins to have a negative impact on native species to that area. Whereas corn is exotic but can't really spread itself, peaches are another food crop that is both exotic to North America and potentially invasive. There are a number of sources and stories that appear to tell the tale of how peaches arrived in North America. One of the most common says that the Spanish conquistador Hernando de Soto brought peaches with him when he explored the southeastern United States, but there are some sources that describe native peoples maintaining orchards of peaches prior to the arrival of de Soto. In general, however peaches were introduced, and on a few occasions went feral their numbers grew to a point that later colonists would arrive to an America brimming with peaches. So many, in fact, that many believed these peaches to be a native species. There are a number of first-hand accounts from people such as William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, describing peaches growing wild in the forests, as well as many Native American words for peach. Now that we have a good grasp on terminology, let's take a look at some of the species that fit into the exotic or invasive category. While hiking, I mentioned spotting a herd of Barbary sheep several years ago in the Sacramento mountains and talked briefly on where they originally came from. But let's take a closer look at the species as a whole and how they got to this part of the world. Barbary sheep or Audad in Arabic and Wadan in Berber, are found across northern Africa, ranging from the Atlas Mountains of Morocco and Algeria, throughout the Sahara Desert, all the way to the hills of the Red Sea coast eastern Egypt. These wild sheep are found in arid mountainous regions, where they subsist on a diet of grasses, shrubs, and lichen. They are also the only members of their species, split into a number of subspecies they have become rare in their native habitats but due to introduction programs around the world they can be found in growing numbers in other parts of africa as well as spain mexico and across the southwestern united states as well as hawaii they were originally released in new mexico in the 1940s not far from where i saw them in the sacramento mountains where they escaped from a private ranch. The state of New Mexico would not officially release Burberry sheep for another 10 years or so up in the northern part of the state. The purpose of the release was fueled largely by the hunting industry, specifically for a big game species capable of taking care of itself in the arid mountains and plateaus of the state. Since the 1950s, the largest populations of Barbary sheep have been found in the southeastern parts of the state, centered on the Sacramento Mountains and the region around Carlsbad National Park. Other populations of Barbary sheep can be found in the Big Bend region of Texas, near that national park, as well as in north-central New Mexico. Across its range, Barbary sheep compete with native desert bighorn sheep for resources and territory. Generally more aggressive and able to survive on less water than bighorns, there has been a push in recent years to cull barbary populations, to allow for bighorns to re-establish themselves in their former territories. The final species I want to discuss is probably the most famous we have here in southern New Mexico. The oryx, or gemsbach as it is also known, is a large species of antelope, native to southern Africa. Much like the Barbary sheep, Oryx were introduced to the Tularosa Basin in 1969 in order to create a population of big game animals that could be hunted down here on the desert floor. It was determined that the basin would serve as a good contained environment for the species to exist, with a population figure expected to stay in the hundreds. Within a few decades, however, the Oryx population had ballooned in number, reaching nearly 6,000, and now it's stable in the range of about 3,000-odd members. They have also spread beyond the basin, expanding into the San Andreas and Oregon Mountains to the west and the Mesilla Valley beyond. In fact, I personally have encountered oryx in the narrow canyons of the southern Oregon Mountains, coming within 10 feet of one while hiking in a dry arroyo. These large antelope are noted for their gray fur with black markings around the upper leg and tail, and black and white facial markings. Both male and female animals have long, slightly curved horns, and they tend to form herds that can grow quickly in size each year, as the only real predator they have here in the valley is humans. Due to the population largely living within the White Sands Missile Range, The oryx have little competition for food from local cattle, and without real predator pressure, they can quickly breed out of control. Local grasses, buffalo gourd, and plentiful mesquite bean pods mean that these animals rarely go hungry. These facts even prompted the National Park Service to build a barrier fence around White Sands National Park in order to protect the unique environment there from these invasive animals. Well, I would like to thank you all for joining me again for another episode of the Road Not Traveled podcast. Before we go, we have the announcements I'd like to share. Thank you to everyone who has reached out to the show and given me feedback on how to make the show better. I cannot say thank you enough. With that said, there will be some changes coming down the line shortly. First off, The biggest feedback item I've received is that people want to actually see the places that I'm hiking in. Like really see, not just the Instagram photos that I post. So to that effect, I have decided to begin filming my hikes. There will be an update in the near future regarding a YouTube channel for the videos, so look out for that. As for the podcast side of the house, the plan going forward is for the podcast to swap fully to these kind of deep dive episodes where I talk about something inspired by the hike. But this also means that I can branch out and talk about connected subjects without having to tie them directly into what I see on a hike. The, The idea is that if you only want to watch the videos or listen to the podcasts, you won't be missing out on anything but you will gain some greater insight by looking at them together. Thank you all for other suggestions, as, such as adding in sounds of me walking across the gravel, birdsong, babbling brooks, any of that sort of thing. Thank you again for your support, and look out for that update in the near future. Until then, I have been your host, Dever Probst. And I hope to see you out on the road not traveled. See you there.